So the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And you guys probably remember, if you've been here for a while, you know that we've been talking about this reality that Hebrews was written to Hebrews, written to Jewish believers in Jesus who were struggling because they they had put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, and that was not the popular opinion among the Jews. The vast majority of the people of Israel had not accepted Jesus as Messiah, had not seen Him as God's chosen King. And so they began to persecute those who did see Jesus as as God's chosen King. And that persecution made life difficult. It made it, made it really tough. And they're beginning to think, well, maybe, maybe we'd be better off if we went back just to Judaism, if we went back under just the Old Testament. I mean, after all, Jesus did teach from the Old Testament. Jesus did claim to believe the authority of the Old Testament. Maybe we need to go just back under the Old Testament. And if we're there that way, maybe the persecution will back off. And the author is writing to these guys because he's wanting them to realize, listen, the things that you're going back to, the things that you think are going to be better are not. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any of the Old Testament system. He, he, he does exactly what God wants him to do. He brings you into the reality that the Old Testament can only be a shadow of. Jesus is better. And when we get to chapter 11... The author is wanting to sort of describe to us saving faith. And I say saving faith because of what he said at the end of chapter 10. Let me read this verse to you, chapter 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe, notice, to the saving of the soul. And in the context, if you remember, the author was talking about those who, who thought, you know what, I don't know if I want to trust Jesus, I don't know if I want to continue to trust Jesus, and so they're thinking, forget it, I don't believe in Him, I don't need Him, and they want to walk away from Him, and all they do so is they go to their own destruction. They, 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 they are basically giving up the only thing that can save them, the only one that can save them, which is Jesus. And so he's saying, we're not like that. He's, he's writing to the, the the, the Hebrew Christians, and he's saying, listen, we don't think that's what you're like. We know it's tough, but we know that you want to press on. So let me show you what it looks like to press on, what it looks like to believe. And he gives all these Old Testament examples of those who had faith. And so what we're going to do is just kind of continue in that theme. We're going to talk more about this saving faith. And we're going to, talk, we're going to begin so by seeing two specific examples of saving faith. First, in verse 30, he talks about uh, Joshua leading the children of Israel around Jericho. He says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, if this is new to you, let me read you a couple verses. Hopefully, they'll be on the screen. Joshua chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 2 to 5. Here's what happens The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands, its king and the mighty men of valor. Jericho was the first sort of city, major city, that the Israelites would have came into in the area known as Canaan. And God had said to the Israelites, I'm giving Canaan into your hands. And so as they go into Canaan, the first place they have to see is Jericho. And and God doesn't just say, look, I want you to go in there and just kind of wipe those people out. He says, I want you to do something specific. I've already given it into your hands. Here's what I want you to do. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. 
And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpets, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the walls of the city will fall down flat. Does that sound weird to you? It would sound very weird to a military man like Joshua. Okay, Joshua, here's the military strategy. March. Onward, Christian soldiers. And they're walking around the wall. And you can imagine the people of Jericho kind of going, should we be scared of these people? Should we really be worried? But the interesting thing was, God says, here's what I want it to be. I want the priests to go forth, and I want them to have these trumpets. I want them to be leading forth with the praise of God. And also, you can read later on the chapter that they actually carried the Ark of the Covenant, which would have been that, that, that box that was designed by God Himself that carried the Ten Commandments in it. It was the place where God would meet His people, where God would meet with His people through the work and ministry of the priest. He says, carry that first, representing my presence. And the thing is, is that what Joshua had to do was, Joshua had to say, okay, look, God's given me this really strange strategy. I've got to walk around the wall one time a day for six days. And on the seventh day, I've got to do it seven times, and then we're all going to shout loud, and the walls are going to fall down. We're not going to build ramparts. We're not going to, we're not going to, to knock down the walls. We're not going to build catapults. We're not going to try to storm the gates. We're going to just walk, pray, and then shout, and somehow it's going to work. Well, Joshua does it by faith. He decides, okay, I don't know what's happening. I don't, I don't see why God wants me to do this, but if this is God's strategy for me to just kind of wait and walk, wait and walk, then I'm going to do that by faith. And then, then he brings up this other issue, Rahab. Now, the reason he's bringing up Rahab, just so you know about the order, is that in Joshua chapter 6, after it talks about Joshua and, and the children of Israel walking around the, the, the wall of Jericho and, the, and, and Jericho falling, it gets into the story of Rahab. And it says, by, the, by faith, the harlot, that means prostitute, in case you didn't know, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received spies with peace. Now, let me just as a side note make something that should be obvious to us. A prostitute can have real faith in Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. We'd be quick to judge people in that life's circumstance, wouldn't we? But a prostitute can have real faith in God. Now, here's what happens. What had happened several chapters before in the book of Joshua is that when, after, the, after kind of Jerusalem or when Jericho gets sacked, what happens is before they had sacked uh, Jericho, um, the, they had sent spies to check things out. And when they send these spies, what happens is these spies are about to get caught and they come across Rahab, this prostitute. And she hides them in her house. And, and listen, here's what it says, Joshua chapter 2. It says, Rahab says to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Listen. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, 
Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also show, show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all that I have, and deliver our lives from death. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about this story. First of all, the fact that her mother, father, sisters were all available, and that she was a prostitute means that these, this family must have fallen into some seriously bad times. They must have been a really difficult situation. But I also want you to notice that when she's speaking not just for her family. She's actually speaking about the fact that this city, Jericho, is realizing, they're realizing God, the God of the Israelites, is the real God, and he's proven himself to be the real God because he's doing all the things that he's told them he's going to do. And they're scared. They're scared that that, that God's going to come and wipe them out because they worship false gods. And here's this woman, this woman who would be the very kind of bottom of society. She's the kind of person that would have been looked down upon. She's a prostitute. She's probably the one who's paying for her family to survive. And what happens is she's the one who puts faith in what she hears about God. I don't know about you, but I'm always struck by this reality, that, that the people that the Scripture talks about, that the people that the Scripture highlights, there's always a very honest account of who these people are. I don't know if you've ever looked at the genealogies of Jesus. Do you know who's in those genealogies? People like Rahab. Rahab, a prostitute. I want you to think about this, that God would decide to so relate to humanity, so identify with humanity, that when He becomes a man, He doesn't just be kind of born in some awesome royal line. He's born into poverty. He's born among a lineage that is, is, is full of poor people and crooks and thieves and prostitutes. And it's interesting that, that God would say, listen, that God would say, here, when I want to highlight those who have faith, I'm going to highlight this prostitute Rahab. You know, the reason I think that the author of, of Hebrews writes these, gives these examples one is if you look at the, all the examples through chapter 11, he's obviously just kind of starting in Genesis and working his way through. He gets to Joshua and he kind of pretty much has to stop because he doesn't have enough time to keep going. But he's working his way through the Old Testament. That's part of it. But the other part of it is I think the Holy Spirit is inspiring this because God wants us to see that it's not, faith is not about us. Trusting God is not about me being a good enough person. I'll approach God because I'm a good enough person. I believe I can, trust, I can approach God because I'm a good enough person. Approaching God is about Him. Faith is about Him. That even as bad as I might be or as, as looked, upon, looked down upon as I might be, as marginalized as I might be, I can come to God if I'm willing to listen to believe that He is who He said He is. This is the same thing you have happening with both Joshua, the military leader, the one who takes over from Moses. He was a highly exalted man. And Rahab, the prostitute, someone who had been looked down upon. These two people in radically different positions in society are exercising the same faith. They're believing. If God says this, even if it sounds strange, Joshua might have thought, I'm going to obey because God knows best. I trust Him. 
And Rahab's thinking, okay, if God's done this, man, he's the God I gotta submit to. E- even if everyone else thinks I'm not worth anything, I'm gonna believe that this God who does these things for these people, Israel, who are nothing, that that God might accept me as well. I'm gonna take him at his word, what he says about himself. That's the kind of faith these guys have. So I, I think it's, it's, it's very much on purpose that we, we sort of end the chapter highlighting these two specific examples of saving faith. People who, who would take God at His word and say, all right, God, if this is what you've said about you, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to move forward with you. Interesting, too, that it says about Rahab that she receives the spies with peace. What is she doing? She's receiving the people of God. I want you to think about that. Israel, God had called Israel to be this light, to be this this example of how good God is to His people. That's how God, when God called Israel, He called them in their weakness. Remember, the nation of Israel starts with Abraham, one man and his wife Sarai, who are unable to have children. And He says to them, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. He starts with those who are incapable of producing a nation to show that He can do what we cannot And he makes this nation to a large nation, and not just a large nation, but he gives them a covenant, a contract based on love that if they live by it, it will show that they are different people. The the main theme of that contract is what? Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's Rahab, a prostitute, but she hears of this God. She knows a lot about the God of Israel, which is pretty amazing by itself. And she hears of this God, she thinks, I, I, I can believe in that God. I can, the gods of, the, of this city are worthless. They have not helped me at all. They've left me poor and having to go to prostitution. But that God of Israel, I think I can trust that God. And God brings them in, walks them in. In fact, you, you read the story yourself in the rest of Joshua chapter 6. God welcomes her in. She ends up being in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now, we go on in verse 32. We go from two specific examples of faith to really two equally valid expressions of saving faith. Kind of, he begins to talk in categories. He says in verse 32, what more shall I say? Look, I don't gonna, I'm running out of time here, he says. Because I'd like to talk to you. Notice he, he mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now, what's interesting about these four men who are named, the all are spoken about in the book of Judges. Judges happens to come after Joshua. So here the author is going through. But something else about the book of Judges that's interesting. Listen to this. The Bible says, in the last part of the book of Judges, it says, in those days, here's what, was, here's what characterized the time of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so what happened? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, in case to your modern ears, you're thinking this is a good thing, okay, It's not a good thing as far as the Scripture is concerned. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you shall not do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. God says, no, it's not the way we're supposed to be. In other words, during the time of Judges, it was a time when people just kind of did whatever they wanted. God's people, those who were supposed to be under the covenant, were doing whatever they wanted. It was a time of national uh, compromise, sometimes of apostasy. People just doing whatever they wanted. But in those days, God raises up these people and actually includes them here in this, what we might call the hall of fame of faith. And what does this tell us? 
It's interesting, too, about these guys, without getting into them in detail. Interesting, Gideon, if you read his story, you read about Gideon, and Gideon was a guy who was so afraid of what God had called him to do. When God calls him to do it, he goes, no, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. Sorry. God says to him, an angel shows up and says to Gideon, come on, you're a mighty man of valor. I'm going to use you. And he's like, uh, no, not me. And he's so afraid to do what God wants, he keeps asking for sign after sign after sign after sign to be convinced that God's actually calling him to do something. Barak is so afraid to do what God's called him to do that he does which would have been what would have been considered completely a faux pas in that day. He does, he gets a woman to lead instead. Deborah. Interesting. Deborah leads in faith too. She even says, dude, you're the one's going to look stupid, not me. That's a paraphrase, but that's pretty much what she says. And what happens? Even though he's this man who's afraid to do what God's called him to do and has to have this woman, Deborah, a prophetess, help him to do it, God brings a victory, and when God brings a victory, he gives Barak credit. Samson. Samson was the most amount of wasted talent that we have in the Scripture. This man was strong. This man was supernaturally gifted. God used him to defeat the enemies, but Samson was weak. He was weak because he couldn't handle his own lust. And eventually, what ends up happening is, because of lust, he gives in, and they find out the source of his strength, which was his Nazarite vow or his long hair, and he ends up being bound up. He ends up having his eyes plucked out. And he ends up being bound among the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. But even in his last time, he says, when his hair begins to grow back, and his faith begins to come back. He says, God, let me have victory one time. And he finds the posts of, that were holding up the building that he's in, and God gives him strength, and he pulls down the posts, and he has a great victory over the enemies of God's people. God puts him in this hall of fame of faith. Now, when he mentions David, David, of course, is the, is the, the king of Israel, and you would think David would have a whole huge, uh, whole huge section here, but he doesn't. When he mentions Samuel and the prophet, Samuel actually was the last judge and the first prophet. He's the bridge. So when it says Samuel and the prophets, it's kind of like saying the A to Z of all the prophets. So, so why am I telling you all this? Because we're talking about these two valid expressions of saving faith, which we will break down in a second. But it's important to recognize that neither of the expressions is limited by circumstances or by personality. So in other words, the kind of, of ways that, that the two valid ways that faith expresses itself, saving faith in God, and the living God expresses itself, both those ways, okay, or to say neither of those ways are limited by the circumstances the person is in or by the personality the person has. Doesn't matter how weak they are, doesn't matter what kind of how bad the nation is that they're living in. It doesn't make a difference. God can give us the strength we need to operate in saving faith. Now, here's the first expression of saving faith I want you to recognize, okay? Saving faith, listen, it expects triumph. It expects victory. Saving faith has that kind of expectation. Look what it says in verse 33. These men, or people like these men, who did what? Who through faith, it says, subdued kingdoms. Joshua went in and conquered these small kingdom states as God commanded him to do. They worked righteousness. 
They did the things that were right in God's eyes. They obtained promises. That doesn't just mean that they had things promised to them. This is probably a reference to specific promises that God had given them. Look, I'm going to do this thing with you in your lifetime. God does that. He still does that. God does lead people specifically. They heard those promises. They believed God for those promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. You know, David had great victory fighting lions when he was just a shepherd boy. But also, remember the story of Daniel? Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Remember that Sunday school story? And what happens? He's he's thrown in there so he gets devoured. But what happens? Their mouths are shut. The lion's mouths are shut. And he survives through the night. They quench the violence of fire. They escape the edge of the sword. They become valiant in battle. They turn to flight armies. Women even receive their dead raised to life again. Probably speaking of when Elijah raises the widow's son back to life. But notice in the middle of this it says, notice in verse 34, right in the middle it says, out of weakness were made strong. You see, what the author is doing is he's wanting to highlight this this valid expression of faith that says, okay, God, I expect you're going to do for me what I can't do for myself. You're going to lead me forth in triumph. You're going to get me through this difficult time. You're going to bring me on the other side, and it's going to be good. David the psalmist says in Psalm 27, he says, that I would have lost hope unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In case you don't know, this is the land of the living, this side of heaven, basically. Listen to what the Scripture says, guys. Listen. God says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. God is looking for us. He's looking for believers who will believe Him for this, who expect Him to get Him through, get them through difficult times, who will bring about good, who will have victories. See, for some of us, this is difficult for us to, to, ex- to express saving faith this way. I'll, I'll just confess, it's hard for me sometimes. I'm kind of an Eeyore kind of a guy. I always look at the, half is, the glass is half empty. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, well, nothing good probably going to happen anyway. That's my personality. That's the way I can be. I'm quite cynical. I don't trust easy. I don't believe easy. So it's crazy that that God would save me and then say, I want you to go preach people about faith. Me? Really? I'm, I'm kind of a cynic. I don't believe that easy. But God calls me to believe. It's interesting. When I went through one of the most difficult times that I have as a pastor of this church, we had a really difficult season that happened. I won't get into the details, but it was very, very hard. It was hard enough that it was coming up to my 40th birthday, and I just didn't want to even be here. So I, went, I found a, um, there was a, a pastor's conference going on, and I left the country to the pastor's conference during my 40th birthday. I just didn't want to be here. And I went to this conference and was talking to a pastor that I really respected, and I was sharing with him what we went through. And if I shared with you the story, you would go, wow, that's, that is heavy. That is, wow, that's hard. I don't, I don't blame you for it in a way. But when I shared with him the story, and I was just saying, I don't know if I can keep going. This is just so hard. I don't know if it's... Maybe this isn't God's will for me. He said to me, you know, John, it sounds like it's been a difficult time. But it also sounds, what I'm hearing from you is unbelief. And I don't know about you, but I deal harshly with my unbelief. And it was like a little bit of a in the face. But you know what? He was right. 
And I've never forgotten that because I realized that, yeah, it was a difficult situation, but the truth was, I wasn't believing that God could do what I can't do. I wasn't believing that God still had a plan, that God still was going to do good things in this church, and He did, and He is. Some of us need to learn to believe God, let our faith be expressed this way. And listen, this is not about you being strong. I'm going to do it. I have great faith. It's not about you having great faith. It's about you putting your faith in a great God. Listen to what the Scripture says. Again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. If you know what that is, you're going to find out now. It says this, But we have this precious treasure, the good news about salvation, in unworthy, human, unworthy earthen vessels of human frailty, so that the grandeur and surpassing greatness of the power will be shown to be from God, His sufficiency, and not from ourselves. This is why God's looking to show Himself strong. He's not saying, Who, I'm looking for somebody strong. That's not what it says. He's looking to show Himself strong through our weakness. And we need to have faith that expresses itself that way. God, you can do what I can't do. God, you can do what I can't do. I have to believe you that you can do what I can't do. I'm going to put my faith in you. Hey, if, if the God who became man and had showed that He had authority over all creation, over sickness, over sin, over death, over nature, over creation itself. Jesus who came and showed all the authority of God, predicted his own death, and rose from the dead. If he can conquer death, can we not believe he can do anything that we need? Valid faith, or faith, saving faith, expresses itself, believing, expecting God to bring triumph. This is what should motivate us to prayer. God, you can do this. Lord, my faith is weak. But God, I'm praying to you because you're the one who produced my faith in the first place. I believe you can grow my faith. God, God I, I'm barely hanging on, but I'm going to hang on to you. Lord, I'm going to look to you because you can do for me what I can't do for myself. The psalmist says, I can run through a troop. That's an army troop. I can leap over a wall. That's like a, a city wall that would be like 25 feet high. I can run through a troop, I can leap over a wall. You think, how do you do that? You do that by the strength of God. But you know what you have to have if you're going to jump over a wall? If you're going to run through a troop, you know what you have to have? A troop and a wall. You have to face a troop and you have to face a wall. And saving faith expresses itself in saying, God, I don't care if there's a wall. I don't care if there's a troop. I believe you can do what needs to be done. And we need to, we need to exercise that. Now, saving faith, though, has another equally valid expression. Look what he says in the latter part of verse 35. He says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. The word for torture there is a very specific word. I don't mean to be graphic, but the, the, those who would have read this when it was originally written would have known exactly what this was. It was a torture... Um, it was a way of, of torture where they would take uh, the victim and stretch him out like a drum and beat him to death like a drum. Beat the person until they were dead. That's what it means. It literally means to be stretched out like a drum. Horrible way to die. So don't just think torture like is I'm tortured in my soul. I'm talking about this is physically being beaten to death after being stretched out like a drum. 
Some people went through that. Still others, he says, had trials of mocking, scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonments. You, you read through the Old Testament prophets specifically, and what you see is these guys went through so many difficult things. Same thing happened to the New Testament apostles. Same thing happened to many believers over the centuries. Same thing is happening today. They were stoned. That doesn't mean they were smoking weed. <laughs> that means people picked up rocks and threw them at them until they were dead. They were sawn in two. Tradition tells us that the prophet Isaiah was probably the person they were referring to, sawn in two. Again, strapped up high with his ankles up and his arms out and sawn in two lengthwise. They were tempted. The idea there is probably they were tempted to deny their faith. They were tested. Would you, if you renounce your allegiance to the God of Israel, you'll be let go? They were slain with the sword. Guys, do you recognize that this is talking about the fact that some people, some believers, are being physically hurt because they express saving faith. That, that, that saving faith is, is, is valid when we say, God, we're going to believe and we're going to experience victory. And saving faith is equally valid when we say, God, we're going to believe even if it kills us. Even if we suffer for it. Both are equally valid expressions of saving faith. This is why I, I am so personally offended by the, what's called the prosperity gospel which is what you see on most, most of the time on religious television. It's this idea that if you just believe, good things will happen to you. And it makes people who have good circumstances in their life, and maybe they actually are legitimately trusting God for those good circumstances, they're the good ones, and those who suffer, they're the bad ones. But the scripture is clear that by faith, we expect victory, and by faith, guess what? We endure difficulty. Even being physically beaten and killed because we do believe. He goes on to say, they were wandering, uh, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. These are uncomfortable clothing, in case you didn't know. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Interesting. The world said, these guys aren't worth being in our cities and our towns. Push them out, they're not welcome here. But God says, no, it's the world that's not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. In other words, listen, some of these guys experienced physical hurt and pain, but some of these guys were simply just pushed out of normal society because of their faith. They were in the margins. If you've ever been marginalized for anything, you know how painful that can be. Here's the point. The point is, listen, saving faith expects triumph, but it also endures hardship. The same faith. Jesus says this, listen. Jesus says in John's gospel, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
He also said this in Matthew's gospel. Listen, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If Jesus says that to his followers, what does he expect his followers are going to experience? They're going to have enemies. They're going to be cursed. Christianity is dangerous. Does that sound familiar? They're going to hate them. They're going to be spitefully used. They're going to be persecuted. And what did Jesus say we're supposed to do? Love those people. See, this is how, what saving faith does. When we believe Jesus, we trust that he is who he said he is, that he's God the Son, that his death did what he said it would do, it paid for our sins, that his resurrection brings what it's meant to bring us, new life, both now and in the life to come. When we believe Jesus that way, we have saving faith and that saving faith expresses itself and says, listen, even though I'm going to suffer, I'm going to still trust him. I'm going to still trust him. And I'm going to trust him enough to love these people because I want these people who are doing this to me to trust him also. So, we go from two specific examples of saving faith to two valid expressions of saving faith to what I'm going to call three common results of saving faith. Look at verse 39. And all these, it says, notice all these. It's, he's referring to all those who have been mentioned even in passing in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, all these have obtained a good testimony through faith. What does it mean, a good testimony? A good testimony, we, if, you, if you are a church person, some of you guys might not be church, so some of this stuff is, is kind of new and probably even weird to you, but if you're a church person, you think testimony means someone coming up and going, I used to be addicted to crack, and then Jesus saved me. That's the testimony. That can be a great testimony, but it's not all a testimony is, okay? A testimony simply means you have something to testify, you have something to say. A good testimony means you have something good to say. What does this mean by having a good testimony? I just want to tell you how good God's been to me. I got sawn in half last week. Is that a good testimony? I saw my daughter raped and killed. No, it's not even funny, is it? A good testimony has nothing to do with your circumstances. A good testimony has to do with you knowing and seeing the goodness of God. It has to do with you testifying to the goodness of God. You know what, listen, if God is doing good things in your life, like, like Clayton was, was alluding to, some of you guys are on the mountaintop, man, God's doing good things. You got the roommates you wanted at uni, or you got that promotion at work that you're hoping for, or you finally paid off that bill you've been striving to do for years, whatever the case might be, things are good. Good, give glory to God for that. Thank God for that. That's a good testimony. But some of you guys are going through it and you're thinking, I don't know if I can even, hold on, I don't even know if I can believe. And the question I want to ask you is this, has God changed? Has the God who is good enough to send his only begotten son, is that God changed? Because the Bible says he does not change. Has that God, listen, stopped being committed to you? Has that God come, gone back on any of his promises to you? 
No, here, here's the reality. Listen. A good testimony. These guys all obtained a good testimony because they could all testify to the goodness of God. Listen. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. When David writes those words, he's not just kind of saying some sort of a theological truth. God is good. We measure goodness by who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Theologically sound. No, he says, Oh, taste and see. He says, I can say from experience that God is good. And you know when he writes this? He writes this, listen, David writes those words when he's on the run from Saul. When Saul, who's the king of Israel, uh, or who is the, uh, the king who has the throne at the time in Israel, though God's already anointed or already had David chosen as the king of Israel, Saul hates David, wants to kill David, so David has to run away, even though David's only been faithful to Saul. And as David's running away from Saul and he gets himself in some pretty crazy circumstances, God brings him through some of these things, but he's still running from Saul, but he can write these words even when he's running away from his persecutors. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who trusts in him. I can tell you that God is good. The Apostle Paul said something similar in in Philippians chapter 4. He said this, listen. He said, I have learned to be content. I have learned to abound and I've learned to be abased or gone with nothing. In all things, I can, do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, here's the reality. Listen, God wants to teach us. To, he wants to grow our faith so that when things are, are bad, we're saying, you know what? But praise God, he's still good. And when things are good, we can say, praise God, because every good thing comes from him. That's the exercise of saving faith. Faith expresses itself by declaring the goodness of God in the land of the living. It says not only did they, had they obtained a good testimony, but also notice it says, verse 39, they did not receive the promise. In other words, every single person who's named in Hebrews chapter 11 is waiting for something. In other words, all those who had victory, all those who, listen, they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteous, they stopped the mouths of lions, they saw people rise from the dead. Those people still haven't found what they're looking for, to quote Bono. That's what that song's about. It's about realizing that no matter how great life is, no matter how much God blesses you, you're not going to be satisfied until what? You see him face to face till you awaken his likeness. You see, here's what we have. This is, one of the, this is one of the results of saving faith. We know that the ultimate is God himself. As much as that we really want God to do good stuff for us and as much as we're so excited when God does the good stuff for us, we know that that goodness is not just ultimately satisfying. It's a shadow. It just simply points to him who is good and it's him that we want and we can't wait to see him and know him in the same way that he knows us. That's why he says in verse 40, and I'm almost done, he says, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, really quick, two things. In fact, I'm gonna have the music team come back up while I finish these two couple things. One is, if you look over on Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 13. Hebrews chapter 11. 
speaking of Abraham, Sarah, and the patriarchs, but this applies to everyone in Hebrews 13. Applies to everyone who has saving faith. Really, it says, These all died in faith, not receive, having not received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have, they would have had opportunity to return. But they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the city of God. Saving faith knows that's what we have looked forward to. I want to encourage you guys to read something, even today. Maybe tonight before you go to bed, or maybe if you have some quiet moments in your room or something, I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about one theme, resurrection. It's about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, which is the foundation of our faith, that that's a historical reality. It's what we are called to, to trust Him in or why we are called to trust Him. But it also talks about our resurrection, that one day these bodies that are falling apart, these bodies that get sick and die, these bodies will be resurrected in exchange for new ones. A time when God's going to renew all things, making all things perfect. I'm colorblind. Not that big of a deal. My clothes don't match sometimes, but my wife sorts me out. But every once in a while, it bothers me. Because every once in a while, I'll see something that someone will go, ooh, that's a brilliant color. And to me, it just looks like red or orange or brown. In the United States, school buses are yellow, but I thought they were light green because I, I couldn't recognize it. Not a big deal. Nothing in the world. Can't be a pilot and, you know, again, my clothes don't match sometimes. But other than that, there's really no big deal to this. But you know, one day, when I see God face to face, I'm going to see every color that every was. You know what? I, I, I'm a selfish git. So are you, don't laugh. But one day, when I see God face to face, I'm no longer going to be selfish. I'm going to love the way He loves me. You know, I struggle to believe sometimes. I do. I, I, I hold on sometimes just barely, like, okay, Lord, I don't know what else to believe in but you. Everything else is a joke, so I have to keep trusting you. But guess what? When I see Him face to face, I'm no longer going to have to believe because I'm going to know. This is our hope. This is the result of saving faith. And everybody who has it gets this. Now, saving faith for every person starts with one simple step. It starts with us. Putting our faith in Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that all of us, naturally speaking, are enemies of God. That's, that's why in your heart of hearts, 
you wrestle with this and I wrestle with this. This is why we kind of try to push God away because this is where we are naturally. It's not flattering, I know. I'm not trying to be harsh. It's just a reality. We push God away. But God loves his enemies. And he loves his enemies so much he sent his only begotten son that would ever put his trust in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't be separated from God, but would have everlasting life. You might say to yourself, I don't know if I can believe to the point that I'm giving God credit for all the good things in my life. I don't know if I can believe to the point that I still think God is good when my life is hell on earth. I don't know if I can believe that way. Well, can you believe that Jesus is who he showed himself to be? Because that's where it starts. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Maybe you're here today and you're going, this Jesus stuff, this Christianity stuff is new to me. You know what? We're so glad you're here. And if this is new to you and you have questions, we want to answer those questions. I say, like I said, I'm a cynic. <laughs> I'm asking questions all the time. Or maybe this Jesus stuff is not new to you, but you're still having a hard time believing it. You're wondering, do I really even want this? You know, be honest about that. Tell people. No one here is going to like condemn you for that. They're going to pray for you. They're going to walk with you. But know that when the author of Hebrews writes these things, he writes these things not because he's just, it's just pie in the sky by and by, but he knows that he knows that he knows that Jesus is alive. He knows that because he knows eyewitnesses. He himself may have been an eyewitness to the, to the resurrection of Christ. This is written just a few, maybe 20 years after Jesus had risen and ascended to heaven. Guys, listen. We're not calling you to have faith in your faith. We're calling you, we're, we're challenging you to trust Jesus.